0: It's amazing that they have this inbound conversion at 30 40%, but then they put Chili Piper on and then they have 70% or 80%. And that's mind blowing. <laughs> I'm
1: Pep Lau. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, Alina Vanderberg, co founder of Chili Piper, a sales meeting scheduling software. Since their founding in 2016, the company has achieved revenues of around $20 million with around 150 employees worldwide. In their recent Series B, their valuation was something like a 20x multiplier on their ARR due to their crazy high net revenue retention. In this episode, we talk about creating a must-have product by taking human weakness out of a key business problem. We hear about having the knowledge, drive, and attention to detail to create a product category leaders wouldn't take a risk on. And we hear about becoming indispensable to customers by being a tool they simply can't do without. Let's get into it. Alina, tell me about the first insight you had about the market before building Chili Piper.
0: We knew that we wanted to get into sales and marketing. We didn't know exactly how we're going to start entering this market and we knew that it was quite uh, fragmented and, and, and crowded space but we had the first client pay upfront to solving a very specific problem that they had and before we accepted that as a project we just asked around if others had the same problem to make sure that it was something that people would pay for which was as soon as you have a prospect on the phone and you want to move them further in the process because it's very time sensitive, and they say, Yes, I want to talk to and get a demo, or I want to onboard, or whatever that next step was, they had to be handoff. So there has to be a handoff to happen in within the revenue teams. And it had to be an equitable handoff that had quite a lot of complex rules in place, and you wanted to make that transfer and handoff as smooth as possible so that you say, yeah, you can talk tomorrow at 3.30 with Joe. Uh, let me book to you and I mis- make sure that you get the invite instead of you having to fiddle over some spreadsheets and do some mathematical formula to figure out if uh, Joe really should get that next uh, meeting on the books or he has too many opportunities or he has too few or he's in the right region or he's not in the right industry, etc. So, Our tool at the beginning did that when um, a rep would get somebody interested on the phone to get a demo, we would hand them off to the right team member on the spot. So it was like what we call at that time a hot handoff. (laughs) And it could also happen so that you could hand them off on the spot so that they can speak immediately to somebody if they would be interested on the spot.
1: So the handoff or the transition from an SDR to account executive took too long because of complicated rules and you guys solved this one specific problem.
0: Exactly. And before, again, before we uh, put our brains into solving that specific problem, we made sure to ask around if many people had that same exact problem. And we turned out that a lot of teams, there was a lot of uh, tension, especially between SDRs and AEs that the handoff was not equitable, that some SDRs would favorite some certain account executives because of better closure rates, and then they would have a commission based on closure, or uh, just because they were friends and they would want that person to get uh, more booking. So there was always this conflict between the manager of account executives and the manager of SDRs that would say, okay, this process is not working, much better to put some automation in place rather than leave it up to chance. And By solving it to software, you'd not only solve some human tensions, but at the same time, uh, the process would get smoother because the prospect would not have to wait on the phone or in the email or whatever the place was to wait to get um, the next uh, interaction with the company. So it was solving two problems in one.
1: So the sales tech landscape is, you know, insanely competitive, so many tools. And, you know, classical VC critique could be, this is a feature, not a product. Yet you went on to, to build it. How soon before you were sure that, oh, this we're onto something, this is going to work?
0: It was very tricky because that's exactly what every VC would tell us, that you're not interesting or just a feature. Even ourselves, we were not 100% bought that we can actually take the next step from that and, and make sure that we have something that could be considered a, a few billion dollar uh, a company. But as soon as we understood the jobs to be had for each one of these roles, we understood that there was much more to it. There were many more entry points where an inbound lead comes in that needs immediate help, that helps automate that conversion and then accelerate it. And then all of a sudden it hit us, shit, this is huge because we are doubling conversion rates. And so you spend the same money as a marketer, but you get double the pipeline without doing anything extra, just paying Chili Piper a few extra dollars there a month. It was like the light bulb uh, switch. As that realization came to fruition, many other use cases around that inbound conversion came through uh, to us and then we sold for them one by one by one until our product became very sticky and we have an, an amazing retention for our customers because as soon as they put sleep pepper, they don't want to take it out.
1: <laughs> because it just works. It actually increases the demo sales conversion rates
0: it doubles their conversion rates for inbound. So you you, you can imagine everybody's super happy about their inbound conversion rate. We say, oh, we close at 40%, we close at 30% compared to outbound, which is whatever, 16%, 15%, 11%, whatever they have. So they compare it with that, so it's double. It's amazing that they have this inbound conversion at 30 40%, but then they put Chili Piper on and then they have 70% or 80%. And that's mind blowing. (laughs)
1: Chili Piper is a fantastic case study on how to build a successful company. The main thing, the value they add is unquestionable and easily demonstrable. For B2B SaaS, time to value is a critical metric, and they absolutely deliver on it. Their customers are more successful using their tool. And that is the main thing to optimize your business for. You can have the best marketing in the world, but it doesn't matter if a tool doesn't deliver. Chili Piper's annual net revenue retention is around 160% meaning even if they don't get a single new customer, their business will grow 60% year over year. Jason Lemkin has said that if you are at 10 million ARR, growing 100% with 150% net revenue retention, then you have already built a unicorn in waiting.
2: No one actually even understood the power of recurring revenue, I don't think till 2017. But now every prospectus that you read today, you know that the headline metric is
0: NRR, ndr right? Every single company, it's their headline metric. So we sold Sign, Adobe Sign to Adobe in 2011. It was 10 million at the time we signed the deal, it was 12 million AR ARR when it closed. And we had 28% market share, okay? Today I'm guessing it's less than half that, 13%. That's a tough drop. But it's 250 million of ARR. So even if you lost market, you don't even have to gain market share yeah. if yeah. you have 120%
2: NRR. That 120% R carried a 10 million dollar business to 250 million, even with market share loss, right? But, you know that would be at least a 10 or billion dollar company today on its own, right? And that's with a market share loss, but with high NRR.
1: Was the success immediate? Like, did it work right away?
0: Which, even though the value proposition was obvious to everybody, and even though it's a no-brainer, like I, I just mentioned. Everybody had a hard time believing it because it seems too good to be true. So they would be reluctant, Oh, I have to change my Marketo rules, or I have to change my dot rules, or I have to change my HubSpot rules. I don't want to go through it, and by the end of it, maybe it won't even happen, that conversion. We said you can try it on just this funnel on your website, just this form that, that comes through, and then you can book it with Chili Piper and see what's going on. And you don't have to make a big commitment. You can just make it with your small SDR team or something different. And people will say, okay, fine, this seems like a smaller change. They would try it on just one part of the website and then immediately the light bulb would come on and they would put it everywhere.
1: I spent almost a decade of my career in experimentation. One thing I've learned. When you sell change, there will be resistance. Status quo is sticky. And some people really want things to say as they are. So instead, sell experimentation. This is not a change. We're just running an experiment. Most people like to think of themselves as data informed, open minded, so they won't fight you on an experiment, at least not as hard. Of course, now you got to bring the data that the change would drive better results. How did you get your uh, first set of customers?
0: We would go to events where we knew that uh, potential buyers uh, would hang and we would say, hey, do you have this problem? Yes, we do. Do you want to solve it? Sure, let's try. So at the beginning, it was a lot of sure, let's try. Um, just by seeing uh, myself and Nicola everywhere they would go, <laughs> they would think maybe these people are onto something. Uh, but because from the very beginning, we got uh, people that were quite influential in their industry and people who were quite advanced in their tech stack and in the things that they would experiment. So the early adopters, it was easier to say, oh, you know that Greenhouse did it or you know that Square did it. And that would make things more comfortable for them to try it out.
1: Were these uh, first set of customers, the influential customers, were they also like generating a lot of word of mouth? Was Did you do anything intentional to get the virality, so to speak?
0: I think that it's something that marketers understand but don't understand at the same time, which is that there is a dark funnel that's happening. People talking a lot behind your (laughs) paywalls and behind your ads and behind everything that you might do that's visible. That's what happened to us in the early days. It was a lot of a strong, dark funnel that was happening.
1: Brand ambassadors, respected individuals and early adopters are a powerful lever in their own right. G, also known as... Yom Kavan, co-founder of Hypergrowth Partners, put it well in episode 10 of How to Win. What makes your audience care? What makes them resonate? And there's only one thing that makes them really resonate, right? It's social proof and the fact that I will see that, hey, like, I know this person. If you think of
2: like a leader in marketing, let's say Udi from Gong. I respect Udi, great leader. And I if I see Udi saying good things about this product, it's probably legit.
1: Now even more important. If you compete with Gong and you see Gong using this product, you're like, I want to know. So one of my key strategies has been to try and present not the customers that they may know, but the competitors that are using my product that they might have. Going back to that initial VC critique, this is a feature, not a product. So essentially, once you started getting some success, were you afraid that like the big players or maybe Salesforce or whoever is going to build what you built? How did you think about ensuring, you know, long-term competitive advantage?
0: It's a question that I would get a lot, even from journalists and from VCs, hey, isn't X going to copy you? Because it's so easy to copy because it's such a no-brainer product. I would say uh, Google can copy everybody. Salesforce can copy everybody. Uh, There's no doubt that they can because they have the cash in the bank and the resources to implement on it. But you have to understand that in each one of these activities or product builds, you have to have a driving force behind it. Somebody who really wants to make it happen and has the skills to actually bring it to fruition and execution. And you have to understand so many facets of that particular problem that's so personalized to that particular persona that the likelihood of that happening is very low. I mean, Google had so many failed projects and I'm sure Salesforce has had so many uh, failed projects because of that.
1: Why small businesses and startups have room in the market? Big companies need to hit certain growth rates. For a 40 million a year organization to grow at 25% year over year, It needs to find another 10 million dollars of business a 1 billion dollars a year company needs to find another 250 million your niche ain't gonna do that so they don't care so just building the feature is not enough you also need somebody to evangelize and and market and tell the story
0: and then constantly tweak things to make sure that it actually captures the attention of that buyer not only at the beginning of the sales process but Post sales process to make sure that the product is sticky. Like, there's so many moving parts in in a product that you really have to have somebody with like a strong energy behind the project. Yeah.
1: As you're thinking about the future, the competition is probably going to get more stiff down the line. What are you doing now about building moats and how are you guys thinking about moats in general?
0: It's interesting because for the longest time we had zero competition and it was quite unusual that we would be operating like that. There's no company that doesn't have competition and it's both a luxury and not because you still have to educate the market quite a lot. When you have competitors that are starting to copy what you do, which is what's happening to us, there's a benefit to that because they're going and they're saying, oh, you should do that. And it's not only Chili Piper who tells you that you should optimize your conversion. There's also X, Y, and Z that tell you that. Then you're more likely to take action. So there's uh, buyers more aware of the problem, they're more aware that there's a solution as opposed to the status quo. So for us, it's actually good in that sense. We're getting the competition to um, educate our our buyer. It makes us more competitive ourselves because then we say, oh, they've done this feature. We should have done it 10 times better. So it brings the competitive spirit. um, And I really like that. And as for how to build the moat, I don't think that there's a specific formula that companies can rely on to do that. It's quite easy to try and experiment new tools and there's no real way of taking people and saying, stay with us unless you're Salesforce and all your data is with you. I don't think Salesforce is going to go anywhere. But all these other tools, it's easy to turn on and turn off. Um, But I think that the way Chili Piper is going to stay for sure is by making sure that we cover all the edge cases and all the... Specific routing rules that other competitors will have a long time to catch up because we have had spent five years on super hard, complicated enterprise hardcore uh, use cases that it's going to be very, very hard for them to catch up. And by the time they catch up, we're going to be more advanced on all sorts of uh, use cases that we're going to cover.
1: So, the strategic bet for the future is like all kinds of deep integrations with enterprise software and the features that segment specifically needs because that's your key buyer.
0: Exactly, and we're going to start covering many other uh, point solutions that they may be using around uh, routing or um, any kind of distribution of any kind, but they're going to be able to do it with Chili Piper and then there's no need for them to, to switch as long as Chili Piper works well and covers what they need.
1: This is a classic move constantly being a few steps ahead with innovation. Being an objectively better option, even if for a moment in time can make you a leader in the space. And you will stay in that leadership position for a long time, even when every alternative to you will catch up and have the exact same feature set. There's a lot of customer and market momentum. Colin Neerkorn from customer.io described in an early episode, how they use a very similar line of thinking in terms of staying ahead of the competition.
2: For us, The pace of innovation is probably the most important thing in the company and pace of innovation can create a moat. In the space that we're in, processing and dealing with terabytes and terabytes of customer data is hard. There is a moat around technologically, how do you support thousands of customers all sending in this like flood of data into the system at at all times? But then what do you do with the data? How do you act on it? What are the options that people have for segmentation? What are the workflows that they can build? And for us, what we've realized is that people always want to do more with their customer data and the data that they have in customer IO. And it's really on us to figure out how to keep meeting the growing demands and needs of customers. And that's that's why pace of innovation is such a critical thing for us.
1: You mentioned that uh, you've been um, doing quite a bit of customer education. Like, What, what goes into it?
0: A lot. Uh, like you experienced, there's a lot uh, that you have to do in many different areas. There's the podcast, uh, there are case studies, there are customer interviews. There's a lot of conversation that needs to happen to expose people, what their competitors are doing and how they're doing it and why they should not be left behind in, in these trends. But every industry is a little bit different. Everybody is approaching it a little bit different. So for instance, our uh, customers who approach small businesses are going to operate very differently than those who are not. Because in the case of a small business, everything has to happen over the phone. There's no, like you cannot send the calendar invite to a small business owner. They're not going to look at their calendar. So it has to happen on the phone and it has to happen really fast. So there are all sorts of subtleties and each Persona is going to perceive that subtlety a little bit different by industry as well. So we have to produce a lot of content in in each one of these entry points.
1: How has the strategy changed between the time when you actually got started in 2016 and now five years later? How has it evolved? What kind of changes have happened?
0: At the beginning, because we were so focused on being cash positive because we didn't have any funding, everything was made very intentional. We had this discipline of being very careful on how any cash is spent, how any hire is made, how how we would do improvements in the product and so forth to make sure that we were, we're economically viable no matter what. And now that this round of funding came upon us, obviously we have more uh, freedom to being a little bit more bold in our actions and taking some additional risks that we would have not had before. Obviously, you have to still be mindful of how money is spent. It, it gave us that courage. And at the same time, it allows us to have a faster penetration, right? So we, we can get more clients faster.
1: When you guys raised your Series B, um... It was impressive to a lot of people like the multiplier on your ARR was high. And this was because of your very high net revenue retention. I think you said it's 159%. How'd you get there?
0: Uh, For us, it's harder to get in the account because people are used to status quo not doing anything. But once they put Chili Piper on, they don't want to take it out because it hurts badly their revenue. As soon as one meeting doesn't happen because there's some sort of JavaScript error anywhere or somewhere, they notice and they they don't realize how life was before Chili Piper when that, that lead was in the books. So it becomes very a very sensitive topic and it becomes one that you don't want to mess up with anymore. So you don't want to take it out and then if your pipeline grows and you hire more salespeople and it snowballs with Chili Piper, right? So <laughs> we bring uh, more revenues to the revenue teams, which in case hire, they hire more revenue people, in case, which means that they pay us more.
1: We now find ourselves entering a new era, the retention economy. Companies that ignore this are going out of business. If you combine high cost of customer acquisition with low retention, that is death. Chasing quick revenue over lifetime value, community, and relationships is not sustainable. Strong retention and customer relationships is how you win in this new world. VCs and private equity give far higher valuations to companies with strong retention rates. To thrive in this new reality, we need a shift in our thinking. A sole focus on conversion rates is flawed. Instead, we need to consider the full customer experience, the brand, and focus on down-funnel metrics like customer lifetime value, net revenue retention, and purchasing frequency. So there's a beautiful uh, flywheel there. What's a typical or what's a good uh, team size that brings you on, and what's too little?
0: It depends a lot on the volume of leads that people are getting on their websites. If you get one lead every two days, it doesn't make any sense to you call them right away. You're on top of them. <laughs> you make sure that they're, they're served uh, with a VIP carpet. But uh, as, as soon as you have a certain uh, amount of leads coming through your website, then we make our life much easier. But it becomes painful around 10 salespeople. That's when it becomes really painful and you really want to fix the problem. So it depends on the circumstance.
1: So now that you, you raised money, you have more resources. So what exactly is going to change? Okay, you can spend more money on ads and hire more salespeople. What else is changing?
0: So that's happening. Then our marketing strategies are changing course as well. We're going to do uh, many more things that we weren't able to do before. And even on the product, because I'm the product side of the funding company. So there's Nicola, who's in charge of all the operations and sales and marketing. There's Alina, me, who's uh, responsible for the product and the engineering. On the product side, it pains me that I cannot have that individual conversation with the buyer and that individual conversation with the people using our, our platform, because that's where the insights would come. Now I have to collect those insights at scale. So I have to be in thousands of conversations that are happening in a way that makes sense. So I can keep that strategy the same at the same pace as I did when I was just myself listening to a- each one of these calls. And it's not easy to come up with a, with a good method to create those insights to come from all the Pipers that we have at Chili Piper and turn it into into a bigger scale uh, feedback gathering. But that's like where I am right now on figuring out how to put those systems in place.
1: Do you have an example of how you collected insights, your light bulb went on, decided to build something and it also worked?
0: Uh, So we have all sorts of alerts um, that we put on all the recordings that we have for uh, when certain key words are being mentioned on calls so that I can go in and then pinpoint, okay, they asked in that way, but why did they ask in that way? Did something change in the market? An example would be our events product. We had a product that would help people book meetings at events in person and then COVID hit. uh, So we had to put that uh, product under mothballing. So we had a trigger on people asking us about events. And as soon as we started hearing that on calls, We brought back the product from the shelf and now we're dusting it off and say okay let's make sure that this product works for its environment but it was because of these triggers on calls that we understood that the market was thinking back about events
1: over the last five years what were some of the bets that didn't pay off maybe some product bets or or marketing strategy wise anything that just didn't pan out
0: well, that's an example, I guess. The events product uh, being launched a few months just before the pandemic hit. Uh, we spent a lot of time into making that work, maybe about a year. Uh, we had it live for a few months and then boom, everything shut down. And all these people were that were planning events before, they were trying to scramble and fear their new lives and new strategies. That was tough. That was tough because we had a big pipeline and big revenue projections from it.
1: Making bets is hard. We want to predict what will happen, so typically companies try to gather as much data as possible to increase the odds of making the right call. We have more data than ever, so we're data rich, but often insight poor. Information is collected, but insight is connected. Even more, data and insights can easily become a burden, both emotionally and practically. Everybody is super busy and has more priorities than they should. Crunching through data is not how most want to nor can afford to spend their day. Folks commissioning research are deluged by presentation, which is often undigested and even indigestible material. Data, both the lack of it and the abundance of, are causing anxiety. There's a deep fear that somewhere there's more data that I could have looked at and then gathered before making the decision. On top of it, this can result in delaying taking action, sitting on a decision and making no progress at all decision making is progress. So it's complicated. That said, separate decisions from outcomes. A good decision might still end in an undesirable outcome. And a bad decision might work out great. This was a massive insight from the book thinking in bets by a former poker player, Annie Duke, changed my thinking about decision making.
0: If we were more
1: explicit in actually just making clear that every decision that we make is a bet, we would actually be better off and it would create a lot more open-mindedness. You can only make the one decision and you're deciding that whatever you have to invest and in, it doesn't have to be money, it can be your health, your happiness, your time, whatever it might be, usually it's all of the above, whatever you're investing in the decision that you, you actually go with, that that's gonna hurdle you to the best set of possible futures as compared to any other decision that you might make. And that's really what you're doing when when you're betting is you're making it explicit that a decision is a bet informed by your beliefs on a set of, you know, possible futures that you might be hurtling yourself to. So once we kind of understand that frame, I think that it actually can help us overcome some of these problems that we have with decision making. You guys started uh, 25 bucks a month. It was very cheap. How has your pricing strategy evolved over time?
0: I think that having something that costs at an affordable price pays good dividends and not at the same time. The reason why we had to start so low is because people had this reference of Calendly because people perceived us as being a Calendly alternative because scheduling, that's part of our distribution. Calendly was, has a free license. They have a $15 license. I don't, but they would come from a low pricing point and we were almost double. So we had to start low, but. ROI-wise, when you double your pipeline, where your pipeline becomes from $4 million to $8 million, so all of a sudden you add $4 million to your pipeline and you pay $30, it's something not quite right. So you don't really believe that you can pay so little to get such a big conversion. So I think it also hurts us that we pay so low. And we, there's so much at stake on that solution. So for sure, it comes with good and the bad, that kind of pricing strategy. We have Moved a little bit from that because we now have a platform fee and there are different modules that you can turn on and off. So it's a little bit different than how it started. But there's one thing that's kept with us and something that's very few companies do. Actually, I don't know of maybe one mother that have transparent pricing. Whatever pricing we have on our website, everybody pays. There's no exception. There's the big guy who, with a thousand licenses, pays the same exact price as, a, as the guy who has only three licenses. And there's no exception to that. There's no negotiation. There's no behind-the-scenes pricing. There's no uh, discount. There's nothing. That's what you pay. And uh, our account executives are a little bit too mad at us because at the end of the month, they have no leverage to close that deal. And a lot of buyers still wait for that end-of-the-month discount. But at the same time, it makes their life easier because they know that they, they can't do 25%, 30%, depending on how the wind blows, right? And you never quite know which <laughs> which discount of the day you're getting. So there's none of that.
1: Taking uh, five to 10 years into the future, like what are the bets you're making to be competitive also 10 years from now?
0: We're going to bring Chili Piper on ready to be IPO'd. I don't know if it's going to happen three years, five years, seven years, somewhere around there. But in the meantime, we want to make sure that we have an impact on our employees. And also, we have put some money aside for a foundation that has a clear mission of helping people uh, break through diversity and, and ending violence at work or otherwise. we were in many countries and many cities. I think we're in 90 cities by now. And I think we're 30 countries. So it's a quite, it's a quite diverse uh, set of people. So there's some benefit to knowing that you're you're working with a company that's so culturally diverse as ours and and that they're aiming to resolve those uh, cultural divergences outside of work as well.
1: That's awesome. Thank you so much, Alina. Thank you, Beb. So, what are the key factors that separate Chili Piper from their competition? One they identified a wider business opportunity from a single client's problem.
0: The first client pay upfront to solving a very specific problem that they had. And we just asked around if others had the same problem, which was as soon as you have a prospect on the phone and you want to move them further in the process to make that transfer and handoff as smooth as possible so that you say, yeah, you can talk tomorrow at 3.30 with Joe.
1: Two. They have insanely high net revenue retention because the product adds tremendous value.
0: It's amazing that they have this inbound conversion at 30-40%, but then they put Chili Piper on and then they have 70% or 80%. And that's mind blowing.
1: <laughs> Three, they use intelligent insights to inform how and when to launch new features.
0: We have All sorts of alerts um, that we put on all the recordings that we have for uh, when certain key words are being mentioned on calls. We had a product that would help people book meetings at events in person and then COVID hit. So we had to put that uh, product under mothballing. So we had a trigger on people asking us about events. And as soon as we started hearing that on calls, we brought back the product.
1: A final takeaway from Melina.
0: Once they put chili pepper on, they don't want to take it out because it hurts badly their revenue.
1: That's how you win. I'm Peplau. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.